0: So we come this morning in this, theory, in this series on hope, um, to think about Jesus as, as hope uh, for those living in darkness. And, and this theme of light and darkness is quite a, a significant one in the Scriptures, often used to sort of, darkness often uh, pictured as, as um, the human condition really, uh, associated with themes of blindness that in the dark you can't see clearly, Uh, also in terms of despair and sorrow, Uh, it carries this kind of theme, and it can be applied to an individual, it can be applied to society, to the whole of humanity, the concept of living in darkness. And Jesus, oh, I need to be a bit careful, Uh, Jesus is the light of the world, is obviously a a concept that's very familiar to us if we've read the Bible. I mean, again and again, reflections on this this theme. And I wanted to start this morning by just reflecting, and uh, I promise to, um, to rescue the situation in a little while by preaching about Jesus, but first of all, reflecting on the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness that we all face. Because it seems to me that much as this is you know, less than cheery, Christianity really only makes sense in the face of the deep brokenness that we all have to deal with one way or another. Perhaps I could have, uh, perhaps I could have the first slide up. Yeah, that slide, that's good, thank you. Um, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we, we held a really great event that uh, Helen Harris and her team had put together here in the church, for folk who, um, who couldn't afford to buy their children uh, a birthday pre- a Christmas present. rather, And, um, uh, and many of you gave um, either a present, or a toy, or, or some money so that we could have a whole range of toys available by age group and gender and, and, and people would come in and choose a toy for their children. On one level, that was a really joyful thing. It was a really good thing to be able to do. But um, for me, I couldn't help at the very least feeling sobered as a result of it all, and actually quite sad at the end of it, because the thought of not having the resources to buy my children a Christmas present, well, on one level you could say that's a bit of a first world problem, but it was quite a thing for people to have to come in and and people saying this is the Christmas my children will have, coming in and choosing a, a present of compared to what most of us would think of spending a very modest present for their children. And still more sad when you began to hear the stories that lay behind people being in this predicament. On that morning, I uh, heard of stories of domestic abuse, which had led to a marriage breakdown, which had led to someone um, being very isolated and, and really not having much financial resource. Facing the prospect of a difficult legal separation, uh, and um, and now being a single mum and looking after two admittedly absolutely delightful children. Uh, another story of um, a person who, through ill health, suddenly found themselves in a much worse situation than they had been, and, and that dovetailing with with all that we went through through COVID, and then another. Another person who, um, or two people actually, who are refugees from Ukraine. I think I read yesterday from memory 9.5 million people have fled Ukraine. I mean, it's, um, Stalin, I think it was, who once said, or it may have been Lenin, forgive me, um, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. It's very hard for us to grasp the sheer extent of human suffering. Uh, Uh, But on that morning, I met one lady in particular. She was a logistics manager in Ukraine. A year ago, she was living a life not dissimilar from many of us. She was well-dressed. She clearly well-educated. Her English was certainly better than any foreign language I speak. But now she's here and reduced to circumstances where she has to come and select a free toy given by other people's generosity for her children. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a toy at all at Christmas. And that was just one morning's brokenness. And I know I wasn't the only one who went home trying to process all I had heard. You know, the truth is that being human gives you a lot to cope with. Um, we, we face fears and concerns and stresses and worries. We face problems with our personal health we face problems in relationships we can't always we feel personal frustration about our ability to achieve all we wanted to we we have ambitions that we don't always realize the list goes on and on and that's just our personal things then there's the fracture in human communities the injustices that we see the way in which we exploit one another and whether you are the exploited or the exploiter we damage Ourselves in the process, or damage others. There's the breakup of relationships and all the pain that that causes, and the list just. Got, and then at a global level, there's war, there's famine. I mean, the list goes on. The brokenness of humanity. It happens at a global level. It happens at a community level. It happens at a national level, and it happens at a personal level. We face so much. When I was speaking to this lady from Ukraine, she said to me at one point, uh, she said, one man has caused all of this. One man. I think it was fair to say she was not altogether pleased with Vladimir Putin. One man has caused misery for millions and millions. Well, I'm not sure it's quite so clear as just one man, but he is the figurehead of a system, a national system that has led to horrendous suffering for millions of people and he's by no, this is by no means the only conflict around the world. So here we are, here I am, James Collins, here you are, and uh, we have to somehow live in the midst of all of this, so what do we do? Well the world offers us some alternatives, perhaps I could have the next slide, are you just lost a little bit of that but here are the it seems to me the main ways in which humanity down uh, human history have tried to grapple with the brokenness of the world around us and this is in no particular order but it seems to me these are the main categories um, of, uh, of response to it. I think Perhaps the most common in our culture are various forms of what's called nihilism. The idea there is no underlying meaning in life. Uh, it's often closely uh, associated with agnosticism or atheism. There's no God. There's no underlying meaning. We're kind of dropped here by accident. And if there is going to be any meaning in life, we've got to, find, we've got to impose it on life ourselves because there is no underlying story. There is no underlying meaning. And this, it seems to me, leads to at least two responses. One is hedonism. Hedonism is the, uh, the approach to life, which is usually underpinned by some form of nihilism. that says, well, there's no meaning that I have to conform to. So the most obvious thing to do is to try to live a life maximizing my personal pleasure. And, um, and you can see the, the, the reason in that. I will do whatever I think I need to do to maximise my pleasure. Most of us wouldn't take that to an extreme. We would recognise that we shouldn't, in seeking that, do anything that hurts others. However, the truth is, hmm, hedonists do hurt others. They try to convince themselves they don't. But inevitably, maxing out my pleasure is likely to lead to me exploiting others to get there. The most common form of, of hedonism in our culture is consumerism—the idea that pleasure is to be found in buying, and getting, and owning, and having stuff. And so, you know, we go for retail therapy when we feel low, as though buying a few things in the shops is going to make us feel better. I once heard a comedian—a comedian say that every time uh, she had a relationship breakdown, she would buy herself a dress to comfort herself. And she knew things were going badly wrong when one day she, she was in a happy relationship, but she passed this shop and saw this dress she liked. So she rang her boyfriend, split up with him to justify buying the dress. Um, the less common uh, approach to this these days, but um, Nisha, who was the father of nihilism, Uh, advocated this is to say look if God is dead and by that he didn't just mean that he didn't believe in God but therefore there is no meaning in life then what we've got to become is supermen or as he called it in German, Übermensch. We've got to be able, we've got to be be strong enough to face the fact there is no meaning in life and and be strong enough to actually cope with that and by sheer force of will impose our own meaning on life. That philosophy led directly to Adolf Hitler, by the way. The will to power. That was Hitler's philosophy. Stoicism. This is a different form of uh, philosophy altogether, really, although in many ways these things overlap in our personal experience. But Stoicism is the belief or, or the practice, really, that yes it's, um, yes, it's difficult. Life is difficult. And what we need is basically stiff upper lip. We've just got to be strong in ourselves, resolute in ourselves, and not allow our emotions to get the better of us. Stiff upper lip. Come on, chip chip. Um, let's just get on with things and not, uh, not be too crushed. Um, that's That's... Very simple way of putting it. The Stoics were around in the days of uh, the early church. Paul certainly engaged with Stoics in Athens. Another approach, again not so common these days, but maybe would have been in in the West 200 years ago, or certainly during the Victorian era it would have been around, and still surfaces within religious systems like Islam and uh, sometimes as a degraded form of Christianity, is legalism the idea that if I can just develop a series of laws for myself and adhere to them, I can find meaning, I can become the person I should be through obedience to a code. Uh, Another approach that people have adopted and certain religions uh, encourage is asceticism, the idea that I will find uh, freedom in life by denying myself any kind of worldly pleasures. This is the absolute opposite of hedonism. The idea that if I can break the affection I hold for anything in this life, then I can find my peace uh, as I am not pushed around by the things that are around me. So um, if I find something disturbs me, I just stop it. And I simply refuse to get too attached to anything in this life. And, and as an extreme that we might see in some form of Eastern spirituality, spending hours each day in meditation trying to empty my mind of any concerns whatsoever. More recently in the West, uh, a, uh, an approach to life, associated with a man called Jean-Paul Sartre, you may have heard of him, existentialism. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy, again based on the idea there's no underlying purpose or meaning in life that you have to conform to, is to say, actually life is just about choices. It doesn't matter what choice you make, it's just about asserting your, your ability to choose. He specifically says, essentially, that if somebody asks you to help them cross the road, there is no moral difference between pushing them under a bus or helping them across the road. You could do either. The key thing is you decide. Now, this is actually a philosophy meant to lead to human liberation. He wrote books. He was honored as a leading intellectual of his day. And within all of this, different forms of spirituality that underpin them or... uh, Uh, or, or, yeah, that that encourage these different philosophies. There may be others, different shades, but I think these are the main approaches that human beings have found over the years to dealing with the brokenness that we all face. Perhaps the saddest thing that we do, and we do it very commonly, is we try and find meaning through things. Idolatry. We idolise people, people, We idolize uh, things like cars and houses. We idolize success. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. You know, if you deliver yourself from one form of idolatry, you'll find your heart hankering for another. We make all sorts of things, you know, we idolize sex in our culture. As though sex has the power to give your life meaning. We idolize all sorts of things and, it, and, and um, idolatry is cruel because you spend your life slavishly serving something and you find out that in the end it has no power to save you it leads to crushing disappointment. And all of that, the background then to this text... This is actually a text that is a, a prophecy spoken by John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, addressed to John, John the Baptist. But it's a prophecy that talks about his role preparing the way for Jesus. You, my child, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace." So it's a prediction about John the Baptist's role, but about halfway through the passage it talks about what he's preparing for, and that is the coming of the rising sun, the rising sun who's going to shine on us uh, from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Perhaps we could just reflect for a moment on the heart of the problem as the Bible sees it. The heart of the problem as the Bible sees it is the fracture in the relationship between people and their maker. And that fracture has taken place because of sin. And sin in the Bible is is seen as two different things. One, it is seen as discrete actions by which we rebel against God. So God has clearly instructed us, and we feel it instinctively that it is right to tell the truth, but there's not a person here who hasn't told a lie. And those moments when you lie, you have committed a sin. Now, sin is an old-fashioned word. What you have done, you have rebelled against what even in your own heart you know to be true probably for some personal advantage. But secondly, the Bible sees sin as a spiritual power, that when you commit sins, as we all do, you unleash a spiritual cancer in your life. It's as though every time, we all know now, don't we, that smoking is bad for us, and if you didn't know that, it might be a bit of a shock to you, but it's very, very bad for you. You're, you're, you're releasing into your system all these toxins. And yet people still smoke. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, when you smoke, you inhale and take into yourself all sorts of you know, crap that shouldn't be inside of your body. And ultimately, if you keep going with it, it'll kill you. Sin is very much like that. Every time we take a decision to rebel against God's standards, the standards that are written in our heart, actually. Every time we tell a lie, every time we exploit somebody else, when we refuse to pay people what they ought to be paid, when we steal, when we... The list goes on and on when we are racist, when we are sexist, when we are prejudiced against others and treat them badly just because of who they are, when we, when we have a lack of compassion in our hearts, when we're consumed with our own well-being and don't care about others. Every action, it's not just that we do something wrong and we need forgiveness, that's true, but it's like we're sucking down the spiritual cancer and it unleashes a power in our lives. The more, we, the more we act like it, the more it corrupts us inside. It corrupts our character and we end up in slavery to sin, as the Bible sees it, unable to live a life even up to our own standards. I love to, to quote something that always makes me laugh when I think of it. There was a, a sort of raconteur, celebrity storyteller called Peter Ustinov, he died a long time ago, but apparently, he, on his report from his national service, when, you know, back in the day when you had to do national service, his commanding officer had written, Ustinov sets himself very low standards and fails to achieve them. Uh, that is humanity right there. We set ourselves very low moral standards and we fail to achieve them. And the more we sin, the easier it becomes and the harder it is to do what is right and we end up in this position of spiritual blindness where we can't even see what's right anymore. Pilate had before him the truth in person but he had so lost his moorings he looked at the way, the truth and the life and said, what is truth? He didn't even know how to recognize it anymore. What is God's answer to all of this? Is it a philosophy? One more ism? I suggest to you the problem with humanity is far too deep for any ism to solve it. Instead, God sends a baby. Next slide, please. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. The Lord Jesus came into the world as a baby. That was God's solution. I mean, it's, un- it's unthinkable, it's unprecedented. He could have come in power. He could have just put down all his enemies. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. But the way he solved it was to divest himself of all his power and all his status and come into the world as a vulnerable baby. That baby grew into a man and he gave teaching. In the space of three years of ministry, he gave teaching that is at one level so simple a child can understand it and is more profound than anything you're going to get anywhere else. He gave teaching that highlighted the scale of human brokenness. But then he started to do things that were signs of how God wanted to meet people in their brokenness and deliver them from it. For people who were blind, he restored their sight. For people who were living under powers of darkness and had lost the ability to live righteously, he drove the darkness out and put them back into their right mind. For those who had lived by exploiting others, he challenged them. And called them to repent. And people did. And ultimately he died on a cross. Again in brokenness and weakness and vulnerability. And experienced everything this world could throw at him. And he died there so that all of the righteous judgment against humanity. Against you and me. Against the whole world. The sin of the one man, and whether that's you or me or Vladimir Putin, all the suffering that we cause could be forgiven. And our unquiet consciences could be dealt with. But you think, well, that's all well and good. It's good to know that I can be forgiven. It's good to know that I can be inspired to live better. But it doesn't deal with the biggest problem of all. We live in the shadow of death, this passage says. We live in the shadow of death. Next slide, please. And as the writer of the, in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, put it, death unravels everything. It doesn't matter how positive my life is. If I'm going to die... And we live, in the, many of us, in the constant fear of death. Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst and disciple of Sigmund Freud, said that the fear of... really had a philosophy which recognized that the fear of death is the underlying human motivation in life. And that people live with deep fear of death. And of course, if we allow it to, that will spread despair into our lives. There's no meaning. There never could be any meaning. Death's going to steal it all away. And if it's not my death I'm fearful of or, uh, or shrinking away from or unable to cope with, there's the question of the death of those that we love and the terrible grief we go through. Well, Jesus is the answer to all of this. Paul, incidentally, death is a serious enemy. Paul called it the last enemy in the Bible. Any philosophy that doesn't deal with it is is a doomed philosophy because the one thing you are sure to face, and I am too, is death. The death of those we love and ultimately our own death. Next slide, please. Jesus walked out of the tomb. The first fruits of those who will trust in him. The firstborn of many brothers and sisters. This is the fundamental way in which the sun of righteousness has shone upon us. That even though we are living in the shadow of death, Jesus can guide our feet into the way of peace. We'll have the nativity in the next service. There's a lot of Victorian romance attached to this story, isn't there, of a stable and stars. and I mean, it's in the Bible. I'm not saying it's not in the Bible. But, you know, we and and for those, I find it quite hard to get excited about babies. As a pastor, I'm expected to. I mean, I like them in principle. Uh, but, um, I, you know, because I think it's a good thing if there's babies around. That's, that's, that's jolly good. I'm all for that. But, you know, people sometimes show me pictures of Uh, of their granddaughter or or whatever, and I I tried my best to get excited for them, but babies don't, you know, they don't excite me particularly. Uh, I just look at them and think, first of all, you know, it's just another variation of Winston Churchill, and secondly, and secondly, a small version, and, and secondly, it just looks like a whole lot of work before you're getting anything back. I loved it when our kids turned into toddlers and you could begin to engage with them a bit. But I do appreciate that you know, other people have a more positive you know, feeling towards babies, to say the least. I find it hard to get excited about these nativity scenes. I will do my best in the next service, I promise, and I realise this is my problem, but... That stuff to do with Christmas does not particularly get me excited. What gets me excited is that in the midst of my brokenness and the brokenness of the world around me, the sun has risen. And Jesus, in a way that all those other philosophies that that have much insight attached to them, they're well worth studying and reading about, but they cannot solve the brokenness of humanity. The brokenness is far too deep for any of them to work. It just seems to me that the longer I live, the more I realize that Jesus has at our very deepest level come and revealed how this broken humanity of ours can be restored. He is able to save to the uttermost.